Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Amen. Father God, we receive your word. Uh, it is our life. It is not a futile thing for us. Uh, it is uh, uh, what uh, you have given to us to guide our steps, to direct us, to sanctify us. And Father, we pray that as we respond to your word, that you would receive our worship. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to clearly and freely speak, uh, that there would be no hindrances to the uh, word being communicated to each one of our hearts. And Father, that you would quicken that word to our hearts by faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> A business article that I read some time back cited an experiment that was conducted by professors Gary Hamill and C.K. Prahalad. Now, it may be an urban legend for all I know, because I was not able to uh, verify the story, uh, but uh, I did notice that John Maxwell cited it as an actual experiment. But whether it's a parable or whether it's a fact, I found it a very uh, interesting story. Hamel and Prahalad claimed that four monkeys were placed into a room with a climbing pole in that room. And at the top of the climbing pole was a big bunch of juicy bananas. But any time a monkey climbed up that pole and reached for the bananas, the whole room was just drenched with ice cold water, leaving a bunch of unhappy and shrieking monkeys. And... Uh, this happened to any of the monkeys that went up there and reached for it. Well, being pretty smart monkeys, they learned pretty quickly this is not the thing to do. And so they started pummeling any monkey that tried to climb the pole. And they would drag him down. They would not let him up there. So after a while, none of the monkeys even bothered to climb the pole. Well, the interesting thing is that whenever the researchers put a new monkey into the cage, the water-conditioned monkeys prevented the new one from climbing the pole. They would pummel him any time that he would try to climb uh, the pole. And the new monkeys figured out pretty quickly it's not worth it trying to go for those bananas. And even after all of the original water-conditioned monkeys had been replaced with monkeys who had never been drenched with water, they continued the same behavior uh, and did not climb the pole. There were the enforcers of this no climbing the pole rule, okay, that uh, was in that monkey cage. And when new monkeys came into the room, they're all excited about the bananas that are at the top of the pole, but the other monkeys succeed in taking all of the joy and the excitement out of this new recruit, 
Okay, and there's a parable there. I think this is something that any traditional church can easily do. It is easy to put a wet blanket upon the enthusiasm of a new believer who comes in and is really joyful and wanting to do something for the Lord. And many churches are experts at doing so. As soon as somebody tries something new, they're doused with cold water. Uh, I remember when I first became Reformed, I went to the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And I, I loved the Lord. I loved the Reformed faith. I was excited about other people hearing about this. So I started going door to door and handing out tracts and inviting people to come to church. Well, the session pretty quickly found out about this and summoned me to meet with them as if I had done something very shameful. And they said, only a pastor is allowed to evangelize. And I said, well, I was just trying to invite some people to church, you know, and give them some tracts. Well, they were suspicious of the tracts. And they told me only the pastor is allowed to do visitation. Well, of course, the pastor wasn't doing any visitation. But uh, uh, this and other ways, they were taking the wind out of my sails. Well, over time, like these monkeys, I learned that I would get affirmation doing certain things and I'd get doused with cold water if I did other things. And I learned that I was valued and respected when I was a quiet, passive pew filler. It worked for a couple of years, but uh, you know me, I'm pretty... (laughs) Uh, pretty um, non-passive, so I eventually joined the PCA. The trouble is, when I was in the PCA, I found that I myself could do the same things as those water-conditioned monkeys. I could take the wind out of other people's sails. I had learned legalism very well. I could shoot my scripture pistol and ask questions later. And like these people here in this chapter who misunderstood Peter, I misunderstood a lot of people And I would jump to conclusions without asking questions first. Well, I thank the Lord that the Lord put a very godly PCA um, pastor into my life who was very patient and firm and uh, consistently tried to pull me back to the point where eventually I began to learn some of these liberties. And I learned to climb the pole and reach for the um, spiritual bananas, as it were, Uh, despite the pummelings that I might get in some circles. Now, I wasn't always successful because I was a real people pleaser. And so I struggled with this for many, many years. I wanted others to like me, which is a form of pride. Uh, I did not uh, want to be disliked. But what ended up happening during those years is I sought to please the people who were dousing me with the most water. It's a strange thing, but I've seen this happen in many other people's lives. And as we go through this passage, we're going to see that Peter succeeds in letting God have the last word. But some people, the same people who doused Peter with cold water here, douse him again in chapter 15 and douse him again in chapter 21. In fact, in Galatians 2, it says that Peter received enough dousings that he played the hypocrite out of fear of man. And I want to begin the sermon by reading from Galatians chapter 2. And verses 11 through 14, we're going to look at how a giant like Peter could succumb to this uh, monkey syndrome. Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews, You can see how even a great man of influence like Peter uh, could easily succumb to this uh, temptation. Now, you might think you don't have the fear of man. I think every one of us um, does struggle with that issue from time to time. And I think Acts chapter 11 is a wonderful, wonderful passage teaching us how to let God have the last word. Now, that's not the only message that it brings. There's other themes in this passage that I will not be addressing But uh, I believe the Spirit of God wants me to stick to this sub-theme of letting God have the last word. Now, let's begin at verses 1 through 3 where the conflict is raised. Acts 11, verse 1. 
And actually, before I read that, let me point out, uh, remind you that in chapter 10, Peter has experienced the supernatural provision of the Lord. I mean, here is all these Gentiles coming into the faith. He's pumped. He's excited. He's ready to tell the church about the neat things that God is doing. But rather than getting affirmation and encouragement, he gets doused uh, with cold water. Okay, verses 1 through 3. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter's probably thinking, come on, guys, with all the positive stuff that's happening, this is all that you can say. Now, he wisely kept control of his mouth, but I'm sure there was a few choice words that were crossing his mind that he would have uh, be able to say. And perhaps some of you have experienced this yourself. Maybe elders have taken the joy out of your life. Hey, we're sinners, too. Uh, I'm sure that I have had times where I have doused people with cold water unwittingly. And uh, it, it's very, very easy to make church no longer any fun, where everything uh, becomes uh, dreadfully uh, boring. Have you had that happen to you? The Bible is realistic, and it points out that if the apostles were able to throw cold water on people who were enthusiastic for the Lord, and the other apostles could do that, it can happen in our century as well. We need to fight against this negativism within ourselves, and we also need to make sure we're not succumbing to the negativism of other people. We're not being overcome by that. We need to take with a grain of salt what other people think of us, if indeed we are convinced that what we're saying and what we are doing is what God wants us to think and to say. We need to learn to let him have the last words. Now, these verses do give us some perspective. And the first thing that we see here is that there will always be people who are watching for you to slip up, to blow it. And they're, they're just waiting in the wings because this is one of their callings to let people know where they've messed up, right? Uh, they think of it as, a, as a, a gifting. It's definitely not a gift of the Holy Spirit. But they have this knack of being able to detect anything negative that's going on in your life. And they just love to point it out to you. And when you're in those kind of uh, churches, after a while, you start looking around your back wondering who's going to shoot you next. Right. You um, uh, you begin to wonder, these guys are doing this for my welfare. Well, who else is after my welfare? I'd like to avoid them. And I want you to notice three groups of people that are mentioned in these verses. The first group in verse 1 is the apostles. The second group is the brethren. And the third group is in verse 2, and it's described with that phrase, those of the circumcision. Now, that is not here referencing the Jews in general. Peter was a Jew as well. Uh, it is referencing a subgroup within Christianity of people who had a zeal for circumcision and all of the ceremonial laws. Uh, in the passage I read from Galatians 2, verse 12, it says, Peter, Barnabas, and other Jewish Christians feared those who were of the circumcision. And so you've got some Jews who are fearing those who are of the circumcision party. And so commentators point out this was a, a phrase that was a reference to perhaps former Pharisees who had been converted and were still bringing in some of their Pharisaical traditions into the church. And while this party was silenced in verse uh, 17, uh, they just bided their time and uh, they bring up trouble again later on in the book of Acts and in the epistles. Now, here's the sad thing. Even though the apostles were not technically the ones who had doused Peter with uh, this cold water, who were getting on Peter's case, they did nothing to stop those who were getting on Peter's case. Okay, They weren't defending Peter either. They didn't douse him with cold water, but they were probably one of the monkeys who was pulling on his leg and saying, come on, Peter, don't rock the boat. We don't want to get in trouble with these guys. Uh, let's just be peaceful here. And so they weren't helping the situation at all. <clears throat> Leaders are meant to take courageous stands in situations like this, but it's very, very easy for us to crumble. One of the things I would ask of you is that you would pray that we as leaders would act like Peter here and not act like the other apostles uh, did in this verse. Another thing that I see in this verse is the sad reality that the news travels faster than Peter could. Okay, the news gets to Jerusalem in verse 1 and Peter gets to Jerusalem in verse 2. 
And have you ever had that where you've come to a meeting with the sinking realization there's probably been a meeting before this meeting and everything's already decided. Maybe I'm the guy that's in trouble. Uh, it can happen in businesses and families. It definitely happens in in politics, but it can even happen in the church, especially churches that have been around for more than 100 years where they have these secret caucuses. And this is the real power. The elders aren't the ones in control. There is a, a power behind the power. OK, and they will get together and they will decide, you know, what kinds of things need to happen and uh, maybe what policies need to be overthrown and what committee member needs to be ditched. And they'll have their assignments all set out. Now, you're going to be talking to so-and-so, and we just anticipate this guy's going to bring an objection. Here's a paper we're going to produce as soon as uh, he comes out with that objection. As soon as they got everything figured out, that's when they call the public meeting. And then they have their official I meeting. I've been to General Assembly at times where I've wondered, man, is this just a formality that we as a committee are meeting? Because it seems like everything's decided. And what is going on here? Now, even though you may not be able to do anything about that, you can make sure you are not a part of the problem, that you're not engaging in that yourself. When the conservatives uh, responded to some of the secret caucusing that was going on in the General Assembly, and they said, man, we need to have our own caucuses and meet together and figure out how we're going to oppose what they're doing. They invited me to one of these, and I said, no way, I'm not going to be a part of that because we need to be a sunshine denomination where everything's discussed in the open, it's decided in the open. We trust God's sovereignty. We trust uh, each other enough that we can talk through issues and be willing to submit if we don't get our way on different issues. And it needs to be a sunshine denomination. But the point is, don't be surprised when news travels so fast that you are blindsided by it. If you haven't had that happen to you, you're a, a strange person. It's going to eventually happen to you at some point or another. A third sad reality that I see in verse one is that the news some people are the most interested in is not the power and the grace and the victory of God and the, the laws of God that people are studying his word. No, the things they're most interested in are not the positive things that are happening, but the negative things. Now, isn't that what makes newspapers sell? I'm convinced newspapers wouldn't make a lot of money if there wasn't a lot of bad news <laughs> going on. It's just human nature. And so a young Christian family will get excited. He'll come into the church and he'll be starting to grow in some of the areas, but he feels so picked on on a whole host of different areas that he feels like he's being pushed out of the church. Now, I'm very grateful in this congregation. You guys have been very patient and kind uh, when new people come in who maybe are different. And uh, maybe dress or look differently, wear these, um, you know, all these uh, different, uh, what are they called? These eyebrow rings and stuff like that, the piercings and the hairdos. Uh, and down the road, these things may need to be changed eventually, but you guys work with them. And I appreciate that. That is a good thing. But it's so important that we uh, resist judgmentalism. God is not finished with any of us yet. And the scripture indicates that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, love sometimes confronts sin, right? It has to. If, if it's destroying relationships or it's destroying a person's life or testimony. But, you know, ordinarily we're saying God's not finished with these guys yet. And it's obvious this guy wants to grow. And, he, and the Spirit's going to get to this part of his sanctification at some point or another. And so we need to be ready to rejoice in the sanctification that is happening in these young believers' lives rather than focusing always on the things that are not happening. Now, verse two shows a second thing that is common to fallen humanity. This is point B. There will always be people who are quick to contend. It's sad, but it's true. And in this case, it was the circumcision party. It says that when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. Now, he's come to rejoice and he becomes quickly roast preacher. Uh, someone once said Christians are like porcupines in a snowstorm. We need each other to keep warm, but we hurt each other if we get too close. Now, that really should not be a truism amongst Christians. Many times it is, but it should not be. <clears throat> when we see Christians who are poking each other too much, we ought to be peacemakers who come alongside and say, you know, what's going on here? You know, let's try to see if we can't work this out. But here's what frequently happens. The porcupines are the tiny minority. They're not the majority, 
But the majority doesn't want to get poked by these guys either. And so they just go along with things. They don't confront it. And uh, consequently, the, 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 the whole congregation takes on the character of those small porcupines. There was a, a picketer in San Francisco who was highlighted in the San Francisco Chronicle because for years this guy would go to almost every protest that was out there, even ones that were contrary to the one he had picketed at the, the week before. And he had a big placard with the word shame, exclamation mark after it. And so they were kind of curious. They interviewed this guy. And he says, well, I, I figure it covers anything. And it gives me a feeling of belonging. <laughs> now, it's, it's sad when people feel like they, they have to take sides with somebody in order to belong. And maybe they take sides with this guy who's all adversary and say, yeah, I agree with you. That's really trouble. And then the next day they're taking sides with this other porcupine over here because they don't want to get pricked by him. And, and they're just sympathizing with what he's doing. But they want to feel like they can belong. Well, according to 1 Corinthians 7, and I'm not going to get into it here, but our goal should not be to take sides between believers. Paul says there, I'm not for one and against the other. He says, I'm for you both. But he was against the problem that was dividing them. We should be for God, for his word, against the problem and helping people to focus on the problem, not be attacking each other. Try to let God have the last word. Verse 3 shows one last dimension to trouble in the church, and that is that there will always be people out there who will look at the glass half empty rather than seeing the glass as being half full. You know that expression. Just They, they tend to be pessimistic. They are always seeing the dark uh, side of things. And so instead of seeing the incredible success of chapter 10, they see it as a defeat. Instead of seeing Gentiles converted, they see Peter as fraternizing with the enemy. Okay. Instead of seeing the freedom that God has ushered the church into, they see them as robbing us of our ceremonial laws. And I have known people who just do not seem to be able to catch the positive side of any equation. Even when they're feeling a little bit ill or sick, they jump to the worst conclusion. They think, well, I must have cancer. Right. You know, those kind of people, they're always looking at life negatively. And it can be very frustrating, especially if you're the one who was the brunt of their criticisms. You feel like you're constantly having to, you know, put out fires and to calm their concerns. Well, let's see how Peter responds. For once, Peter thinks before he talks. Verse four. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning. Now, that phrase in order shows that he's not talking emotionally here like he sometimes did. He was measuring his words. He was thinking carefully about what he said. Now, in the gospel accounts, Peter was the one who was very emotional, who stuck his foot in his mouth many times, right? He'd let these zingers come out of his mouth before he even knew the implications. And immediately he, he uh, said, oh, yeah, that's wrong. And he lets another zinger right out of his mouth. Very emotional guy. But um, if you're one of those types, take heart. Peter learned. You can learn, too. And I'm amazed at how Peter in this passage turns away anger with a soft answer. He's learned a great deal of self-control. And it is hard. It is hard not to get emotional when you're feeling like you have been beat up. Right. And so it's good to take a step back. Try to look objectively at the problem. Try to look at what their concerns are, not just defending your own. Look at what their concerns are and analyze the problem uh, like Peter does in this passage. And so Peter explains God's purpose rather than defending himself. There's a big difference. You know, on the former, you lay out the facts and you let them be for what they are. But when you're defending yourself, you're trying to just present the information that's going to make you look good. Okay, you're trying to cover yourself. And um, Peter explains the whole situation rather than simply defending himself. And he deals with the problem rather than attacking people. The second thing that you'll notice throughout the speech is that Peter justifies his uh, actions by appealing to God. And we have got to get used to quoting the Bible in our debates. You know, if we're defending a given position and we do not back it up with the Bible, all it is, it's, it's our opinion. And what makes your opinion any better than somebody else's opinion? We've got to make sure that we back it up with the only thing in life that is infallible with the Word of God. Notice third that Peter shows humility and patience. Now, given the attack he had received, 
It would have been very easy to get testy and to get defensive, but he does not. He's patient. He's gentle. He humbly presents God's word and trusts God to change their hearts. Uh, Sometimes arguments are fanned into fights because we respond to heat with more heat, right? Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15, verse 1. Another proverb that I love is Proverbs 25, verse 28, which says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. We think if we lash out real hard, that's the best way that we can defend ourselves. You know, the best defense is an offense, right? And we're very offensive sometimes. And yet that scripture indicates, no, that's the indication your walls are down. You're defenseless to Satan if you don't have control. And you show you really don't have an adequate defense to other people. One of the rules that I was taught uh, over and over again is you probably don't have a good argument if you have to resort to mockery and scorn and anger. And so uh, the the indication is we've got to be in control there. We've got to be in control of our mouths and not be adversarial. One last point before we dig into his defense is that Peter does not act like the Pope. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church claims that Peter was uh, the first Pope, but we saw in Galatians 2, Peter was acting in a way where he was willing to submit and be accountable to Paul. And here, he's a person who's totally accountable to God before the people as well. And so let's quickly look at the biblical case. And because we've already dealt with almost everything that's in this story in chapter 10, I'm not going to deal with all of the issues. We're not going to repeat ourselves. But let me just make a few highlights. In verse 5, he says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. This was not something that Peter entered into autonomously. He sought God's guidance. Now, just as a caution, I think we need to, we need to make clear that if you just say, well, I prayed about it, that's not enough. You know, you can say, okay, you prayed about it. What's the wisdom that the Lord's given you? Where's the evidence? Just I prayed about it. It's not a good enough answer. But that is definitely a good place to begin. Then in verses 5 through 10, he tells about the apostolic vision. In other words, he's acting under God's direction. In verse 8, Peter lets the people know he can understand their concerns because he had the same concerns. In fact, not only did he argue, he wasn't arguing with men, he argued with God. And that would have been something that would have been humbling to admit. And so take a look there. It says, not, I said, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. Peter is saying that he was just as steadfast of an observer of the ceremonial law as these detractors were. And so, in effect, he's identifying with the detractors. He's saying, I understand your concerns. I had exactly the same concerns when the Lord presented this before me. And by doing this, what he's doing is he's helping to pull them into the story and to identify with what he was going through at each stage of his preparation. When others have a hard time believing what we believe, it's a good thing to remember we don't always come to these positions overnight either. You know, if they disagree with the Reformed faith and they just think, oh, that's nuts. If you believe in Calvinism, you're not going to be engaged in prayer and you're not going to be engaged in in evangelism or things like this. Be sympathetic with them and try to look at it from their perspective. Try to understand all of the things that you struggled with when you were wrestling with the Reformed. They're probably wrestling with exactly the same uh, issues. And so try to identify with what they're thinking, address those concerns, be sympathetic. It's, I think, a wonderful strategy when you're dealing with conflict. Fourth, he mentions God's rebuke to himself. Verse 9 says, But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now, what's so great about that statement by Peter is he puts himself into the same boat that they are in, in needing God's rebuke. And I think when people need a rebuke, if we come to them with the recognition, we're sinners too, and we are open to correction as well. We're not going to come across like self-righteous Pharisees, you know, or just coming down to hammer these people as if we're above correction ourselves. No, he recognized and he let these people know that he's been rebuked by God's word as well. And even though it's subtle, I think there's no question in the minds of these hearers. Yeah, Peter got the rebuke. But in effect, when he's bringing this up, he's saying we need rebuke as well. Right. And uh, 
I, I, I sometimes say that a subtle use of a surgical scalpel with painkiller is sometimes much more effective than using the sword without painkiller. Okay? And that's what Peter is doing here. He's being a little bit more subtle. Verse 10 mentions the three times that God gives the vision and says the same thing. Now, in Jewish thought, this was a very significant thing. Uh, uh, there was always re- requiring two or three witnesses. And any time God repeated himself three times, they said this was incredibly significant that God would do this. And so uh, that, together with the fact that it came down from heaven, it's ushered back up into heaven, shows God is in this. In verse 11, he appeals to divine providence. God's timing is amazing. At the very moment that that vision ceases, the men are at the door. Just awesome providence of the Lord. And then verse 12, he appeals to spiritual guidance. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing, implying he had doubts. Just like these guys that he's dealing with had doubts, so he's identifying with them. But he's also making it very clear he had no choice. God was in all of this, which implies what? It implies they don't have a choice either. And so you can see the very careful way in which he phrases himself. A big part of leadership is learning how to control your mouth, right? Learning how to speak properly. Then in the second half of verse 12, he appeals to six witnesses. And boy, was he glad that he had taken those witnesses along with him. In Jewish life, three witnesses was enough. It was more than enough. You only needed two, but three witnesses, that was a full witness. Well, here is a double full witness that he was bringing with him. And they were right there in the room. They were there ready to back him up in what he said. Verse 13 mentions the angelic confirmation. Verse 14 gives the angelic promise that these Gentiles would be saved. And so we're not talking about just anybody coming into the church. We're talking about saved people. The angel himself said these people would be saved. And so he's reinforcing point upon point uh, his argument with these people. Then in verse 15, Peter points out that they received exactly the same manifestation of the baptism of the Spirit as the Jews had in chapter 2. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And so now it's beginning to be clear that the ancient prophecies that the kingdom would be expended to all of the nations, that the, that the Spirit would be poured out upon all nations is beginning to be fulfilled. Peter appeals to the testimony of Jesus in verse 16. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now that statement accomplished four things. First, it's just another indication Peter was just as surprised as they were. See, he didn't go into this knowing everything as the Lord just unfolded things little by little as he walked into the situation. And so, in a sense, it's another subtle statement. Look, I was just as surprised as you are. I'm not surprised at all by your reactions to what I'm saying here. He's identifying with them. Secondly, just as their own baptism initiated them into kingdom power. This was a baptism initiating the Gentiles into kingdom living as well. Now, an initiation is a change, right? And change is always difficult, uh, but change is necessary. Thirdly, it made it clear that these Gentiles were not second-class citizens. And then fourth, it made clear that God did not require circumcision for them to become full church members. Now, this is going to be a sore point in the church for still quite a number of chapters to come. But Peter makes it very clear. This was the right thing to do. And God was the one who was totally behind it. And then finally, in verse 17, he sums everything up. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And the implication is, again, polite, but quite clear. Who are you that you can resist God? We must always let God have the last word in everything that we say and what we do. And that's where I want to end here. I just want to spend a few minutes on summarizing how do we, in a practical way, let God have the last word uh, in our lives. Some people let God have the last word because they're forced to it, because they're shamed into doing it, because the whole majority is coming against them. Other people, right from the beginning, they want to know God's will. They're eager to follow after it. But Peter, as a leader, shows the importance of following God no matter how difficult the outcome might be. 
And he knew he was going to get flack. He knew it. Uh, Peter knew that he would even lose some influence or at least had the potential of losing some influence in the church. A number of commentators have pointed out that from this point forward, um, it is James who is the acknowledged leader in the church. Previous to this, it's always Peter, James, and John. After this, it's James, Peter, and John. And you can see that, for example, in Galatians 2.9 or in Acts 21. Paul goes to James and to the whole church. And James is seen as being the leader of the church. Now, Peter is, James is not pushing Peter out of leadership at all. Not at all. Peter is respected. He's a very strong uh, leader. But while the majority of the church respects Peter, only James has respect of the whole church. The circumcision party that plagued the church all the way through the book of Acts was only interested in submitting to James. And the passage I started from in Galatians chapter 2 shows, and I want you to turn there with me again, it shows that there is sometimes a cost to taking unpopular stands. So let me read that again for you. And it'll give you a little bit of a feel of the tensions that were going on behind the scenes. Galatians 2, beginning at verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, I feel sorry for Peter because he is being pulled in different directions. He's got pressures in Jerusalem to go in one direction. He's got pressures by Paul to go in another direction. It seems like he can't win for losing. He's trying to be all things to all people, but it is not working. Everybody's now upset with him. And, and so Peter as over time has to learn the lesson, you cannot please everyone in the church. You've got to seek to please the Lord and let the chips fly where they may. Let the Lord have the last word. Anyway, Paul says, Peter was to be blamed for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Now, I want you to notice these men came from James and Peter feared these men who came from James. He feared getting pummeled. It was the monkey syndrome. None of us likes to get pummeled, but the, the greater our awe, our respect, our fear of God and the less our fear of man, the better possibilities we're going to have to have perspective in the midst of those pummelings. And so it seems as if those from the circumcision party were not at this point opposed by James. In fact, he's the one who sends them. James seems to be able to get along with them quite well. And so there seems to be some leadership tension that Peter feels here. And it changes Peter's reactions to those whom he loves amongst the Gentiles who are converted. Let me read that again. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. What we see here is that when a leader fails to have, let God have the last word, it has a negative influence on the whole church. Other people follow his lead on that. And they begin to not let God have the last word. He drags them down. And this is why Titus and Timothy and Acts insist on uh, the qualifications for leaders. They want godly, strong leaders in the church because it's hard enough for a godly man like Peter to stand strong and these other people to stand strong. It's going to be almost impossible if a person has major character flaws uh, that are in them. And so we need to take... Uh, those character uh, traits uh, that the Scripture lays out very, very seriously. Well, going on, uh, verse 14 says, uh, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? He's saying, be consistent, Peter. Don't let the squeaky wheels have the last word. Don't let the people who are dousing cold water on you have the last word. Let God have the last word. Be willing to take the flack. Develop such a fear of God that you do not have the fear of man. 
Now, we're going to see in Acts 15 when we get to that chapter that James eventually takes a tough, strong stand against the circumcision party. But it took him a while to realize the terrible dynamics that go into just going along, playing along, uh, being a nice guy and going with the flow. In fact, in Acts 11, verse 1, all of the apostles were being nice guys and letting Peter handle it. Now, I don't think they were deliberately doing anything that was mean. Maybe something like this was going on in their heads. You know, Peter's a pretty tough guy. I think he can handle this, and I sure don't want to get torched. Uh, Let's just see how it all plays out, and, you know, we'll be supportive of Peter, but they're not defending him. And that's the thing I think that was going wrong. They don't want to stand out and possibly be on the wrong end of a stick. But you know what? When you understand these dynamics, it really helps you to sympathize and to appreciate why it is The people who are strong leaders at the General Assembly vote contrary to their conscience and why it is that on presbytery floor, people will not oppose issues or stand for issues that are near and dear to their hearts when they see that they're in a minority because they want to please men rather than letting God have the last word. It's so easy to happen. You, you might think, oh, that's ridiculous. You just vote the way you, you vote. I tell you, when you're in the midst of that circumstance, I've been there many a time. It's just like, oh, man, no matter which way I vote, I'm going to offend somebody. And the tension is there. And you've got to fear God more than you fear man. And by the way, if the Spirit of God is convicting you in the sermon this morning, don't let Satan take advantage of you on this and make you discouraged, just repent, go on, get up and and try again. You know, Satan is one of those monkeys too that tries to get us down. Every time we fall, he's pulling on our legs and not wanting us to get back up on that pole and pursue those spiritual bananas, right? Uh, Satan is going to scream at us. He'll pummel us. He'll do everything that he can to make us think, "Ah, I'm just going to give up. It's not worthwhile. Don't do that. In fact, this is the difference between one who is the elect of God and one who is heading toward perdition is the elect of God. They always get up again after they have fallen. Let me read you Proverbs 24, verse 16. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. What he is saying is the righteous man will fall over and over again. Now, maybe not on the same sin, but he's going to have sin in his life But he's always going to get up. He's always going to try again. Whereas the one who is not elect, he falls and he gets discouraged and he doesn't bother trying again. He does not get up again. Rodney gave me a a, um, an essay from a Toyota company that I just thought was a superb example of this tension between having goals for perfection and yet recognizing we're never going to be perfect. We're always striving toward it and not giving up on that goal. And I think that's the way it should be with us as Christians. As a child, you get up and you keep striving toward the goal that God has set before you. But in your day by day life, you recognize I'm never going to be perfect and I'm not going to let Satan have uh, get me discouraged and get me down. I'm going to say, "Okay, I'm a sinner. And Lord, I thank you that I'm secure in you. And I thank you that you cleanse me from my sins. I'm going to get up and I'm going to strive again toward that goal. We've got to do that. Don't give up. Don't give up when Satan pulls on your legs. Okay, verse 18 begins. When they heard these things, they became silent. Now, I am a little cynical about why they were silent here, because they bring up the same issues later on in the book of Acts and all through uh, the epistles. But at least they quit arguing here. They're smart enough to know that in a church where the word of God is king, doesn't do a whole lot of good to keep arguing after a brilliant argument like what Peter has given here. And so I think they just they're silent and they're biding their time for another time because they bring up exactly the same arguments in in chapter 15. Now, even if I don't have the right to be uh, cynical like this, I think we can learn from their silence. We must not keep on arguing when we do not have a biblical case. I've known people, they just keep arguing and arguing even when they don't have any They've lost the argument, but they can't give up arguing. You know what? The book of Proverbs says that is a characteristic of a fool. 
A fool continues to argue, even when all the facts are against him, a fool continues to argue because he's intent on winning his position, not winning people, not pursuing after the truth. And so we must not uh, do that. But, you know, it's interesting in Proverbs, it says even a fool is considered wise when he shuts up, (laughs) when he keeps his mouth closed, even a fool is. The other lesson I learned from that phrase is that we must restrict ourselves to using the authority of God's word to silence opposition, not flexing our political muscles. Now, Peter could have flexed his muscles there, but he just patiently and kindly keeps bringing them back to the word of God. It's the word of God that should triumph in the church. Let God have the last word. Now, here's another response in verse 18. It says, and they glorified God. Now, if that were our goal in every argument that we've ever gotten into, man, we would make so much progress. Our goal is to glorify God. But, you know, often our arguments are simply to glorify our pride and to make us feel important and respected. Now, if your goal was indeed to glorify God, then you should be able to instantly say when somebody really brings a good point in the argument to say, wow, thank you for bringing that up. I hadn't realized that you're right and I am wrong. But if your goal is to glorify your pride, you're not going to be able to say that you're going to you're going to be grasping for straws to protect your position, your turf. And actually, I've I've seen people in the congregation here exhibit exactly that kind of a humility where people have corrected you and you said, you know, you're right. I hadn't considered that before. And you go on with their conversation as if it was the most natural thing in the world to be corrected. That's the way it should be. Psalm 141 verse 5 says, let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness and let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. Wow. Where would the church be if everyone had that kind of an attitude? Lord, I want to be right. I don't want to win. I want to know your truth. I don't want to just always be winning arguments. It would would be a tremendous, tremendous thing. So let's make it our goal in our arguments to glorify God, not to win an argument. And that's what at least some in the church did in the last phrase of verse 18 They glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. In effect, what they're saying is, you're right, Peter, and we're wrong. In fact, we're glad we're wrong because now we suddenly realize that God's kingdom is advancing. We're in a period that's doing things that even were beyond our wildest dreams. And so... They were encouraged. And brothers and sisters, I would just urge you to let these words of Peter sink down into your lives and to become a pattern for the way in which you act and the way in which you talk. You cannot have your goal as ease and comfort because God's always going to guarantee there's going to be monkeys that will be pulling at you and screaming at you and and trying to pummel you. In fact, Satan's going to guarantee that that's going to happen. And during those times that you are being pummeled, you can withstand if you always let God have the last word. Don't make it your goal to be understood by others because there's going to be people who will always um, be not people who will fail to be persuaded by the word of God. I mean, if you think of his arguments here, how could you have a more powerful, a more convincing portrayal of the word of God than what Peter gave. And yet these people are so hard hearted. They bring up exactly the same arguments Peter has convincingly answered here. And they don't care. It's almost as if they're saying, don't confuse us with the facts. We've got a position we are going to defend and we're going to do it by hook or by crook until it is accomplished. And they use every dirty trick in the book until finally in frustration they left the church. So, Don't look for a perfect church. There will always be insecure and overly secure elders and pastors and members and brothers and sisters. There's always going to be righteous men and women who will fall seven times. I think that's a cool expression in the Old Testament. They're righteous, but they fall seven times. We're righteous in Christ, right? And yet we fall into sin. And so when that happens, we shouldn't be shocked. And, and judgmental and what is wrong with you that you have fallen seven times? No, the Bible expects that there's going to be falling into sin. But when it happens, what do we do? We come alongside of these people and we don't say, oh, well, you're, you're, you're a sinner. Don't worry about it. No, we come alongside and we lift them up and we brush them off and we give them a, a cheerleader session. We say, go on, strive for perfection. 
At the eighth time and the ninth time, you continue to work with them. Won't be a perfect church, but there should be a church that's striving for perfection. Don't get discouraged when people treat you as being the only problem. When you and everybody else can see these guys are at least 90% of the problem, if not all of the problem, but they're blind to it. They're absolutely blind to their own fault. Uh, Don't be discouraged by that. Instead, be forbearing of other people. In fact, that's a big part of Christianity is forbearance for the brethren. Uh, It's a a big chapter in one of the books in the Godly Men Training that uh, you're going to be getting uh, into if if you go to that. But at the same time, don't neglect the issues that have to be addressed. Uh, Peter is very forbearing. He's very kind. He's very gracious and gentle here, but he addresses the issues head on. He does not ignore them. Don't be discouraged when people call you proud. And man, they don't smell the pride that is eking out of their pores and out of their mouth. Pride is like bad breath. And it's like, um, you know, the garlic body odor that you have. Everybody else knows you have it except for you. And that's the way it is sometimes with these people. They call you proud And they don't see how much they reek with pride. Just humbly say, you're right. I am proud and I thank you for pointing that out to me and trust God to point out their pride in his own time. God is a God who is going to sanctify his people and take them from glory to glory, from faith to faith. And we can have a confidence he knows how to do that. But in all things, let's commit ourselves to letting God have the last word. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the testimony of Peter and for the humility of some of these saints of old who are willing to open themselves up uh, and uh, to even have uh, things like this recorded in the Scripture for all time. I pray, Father, that you would uh, enable us to have the same humility, to not be so prideful that in our shame we try to cover over our tracks and to look like we are perfect. Father, we know none of us is perfect. Help us to have an openness, a humility, and yet also a zeal for holiness, a zeal for Your grace. Father, it's so hard to be balanced. And I pray that You would forgive me for the times where I have been involved in dousing people's enthusiasm uh, with cold water. Now, forgive this Your congregation and any times that they have been involved in that. And help us to be a gracious church that uh, pursues after Your law by the empowering of Your Holy Spirit because we love You, not because we're trying to be better than anyone else. Father, be with us. Empower us. Strengthen us. Fill us with joy and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Give us hope for those who have lost all hope. And I pray, Father, that in all of these things as a body, we would exhort and encourage one another to strive toward the goal that You have set before us. And Father, we would support one another and bring joy and comfort and encouragement into each other's lives. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.